Dolphins, and it was just great to see her in there sharing about Christ, sharing about God's Word with them. And then I was walking down the hallway, and I walked past where our communion uh, items are all put together. The little cups are put in there, the juice. And Jessica Jones was in, the, uh, in that little kitchenette area, and she was putting the trays together, both here and the ones that are served through the back. And then when I got into the church this morning, I was standing greeting people. And as I was standing at the back, Walt Light came walking by, and he said, you ordered the public chicken this week? Yes. And so he's planning on going by and picking up the public's chicken you know, in a couple of weeks, we have here what we call the Every Member in Ministry campaign that always is the first three Sundays in August, where we have sign-up sheets in the lobby, and there's all kinds of these behind-the-scenes roles that we need for you to play. So just be thinking about that, praying about that, asking the Lord how you might serve this body of Christ um, in the coming year. Uh, we've been in a series traveling, uh, looking at the uh, life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter, and we are considering uh, places where Peter plays a prominent role in the book of Acts. And so today we come to Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, uh, and this is uh, a story where Peter has a vision from God about including the Gentiles into the family of God. And if you remember, Peter is Jewish. Peter's grown up Jewish, as are the rest of the disciples of Jesus. And so far, up to this point in Acts chapter 10, most of the converts to Christianity that have come to the Lord Jesus, have come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, have come from amongst the Jewish people. Almost all, you might even say. Um, but Peter will be introduced today to this notion that God intends to bring, yes, even non-Jews, Gentiles, into the family of God. Again, our text comes from Acts chapter 10. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet. We'll be reading Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 8. This is the beginning part of the story. Uh, we'll be introduced to a man named Cornelius. We'll learn a little bit about him here in a moment. So Acts chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 8. Here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I know we got a little technical thing there going on. Uh, verse 6 or verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll, we'll figure that out. You know, you can get a two-day uh, mail delivery from some of these places these days. And so I'm sure we'll have a new one by next week. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so there's our story. So in this story, we're introduced to one of the main characters uh, in this narrative. It actually begins back in chapter 9, around verse 32. And this narrative runs all the way through about the middle of, I think, to verse 18 of chapter 11. So it's a long story, and it all has to do with Peter and this vision that he has from God, which we're about to be introduced to. So before we get to the vision, though, I want to talk a little bit about this guy named Cornelius and what we learn from him in the story. It says in verse 1 that he is a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Thank you. A centurion is a Roman officer, not a foot soldier, but an officer. And the word century means a hundred. So how many soldiers did he have under him? 
A hundred. Okay, so he had a hundred soldiers that was under his command, and it says that his hundred soldiers were part of an Italian cohort. Now, we learn from uh, extra-biblical documents that there was an Italian cohort that was there in the city of Caesarea from about 4 A.D. all the way through, I think, into the 40s or maybe 50 A.D. Um, so it was a group of people from Rome, an Italian cohort, right, from, from the Roman area that had come, and they were in this, this city of Caesarea. A cohort is 600 men. So that means that Cornelius was responsible for one-sixth of the cohort of these Italian soldiers that were stationed in Caesarea. Um, and so we can imagine that he was a man of some rank. He was a man of some importance. I mean, he got the daily briefings. Uh, he sat in on the weekly meetings with the generals and that sort of thing. He knew what was going on around town and in the region, in the area. And so he was a man of some rank. It also says that Cornelius was stationed at Caesarea. I've got a map for you here. Do we have? Oh, we don't have it. All right. So anyhow, maybe in the back of your Bible, you've got one of those little maps. I don't know. But anyhow, um, on our map, you would see that Caesarea was a coastal city. It was a city that was um, built by Herod the Great um, back in the 40s or so, 30s, I'm not sure, uh, B.C., and that on down from Caesarea was a city named Joppa, and that's going to figure in here in just a little while. In addition to these facts, we are told, verse 2, that Cornelius was a devout man. By the way, there's a Bible in some of the seats in front of you if you want to just go with that route. Or your, 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 your phone, that's always good too. Verse 2, Cornelius was a devout man who feared the God of the Bible along with his household, it says, and he gave alms. Alms are gifts that you give to the poor. He gave alms and that he prayed continually to God. Now remember, Cornelius is not Jewish. He is as Jewish through and through as it gets. However, he did not worship as his counterparts did. People like the gods of Zeus and the god of Hermes and the god of Artemis and those sorts of things. But he was an inquisitive man. He was stationed there in Judea where the Israelites are, where the Jewish people are. And he began to inquire about this god that they served. And in inquiring about the god of the Bible, he became uh, convinced that the god of the Bible was indeed the god of the universe. And so he held this god in respect and prayed to this god. And it says not only was Cornelius believing in this as well, his whole household. One day Cornelius is having his prayer time. You say, how do you know that he was having his prayer time? Because it tells us in verse 3 that it was about the ninth hour of the day when Cornelius has this, this, sees this, uh, this angel, comes and visits him. The ninth hour of the day was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, all the Jewish people had their afternoon prayers. And so here he is, this Gentile who's observing these Jewish customs and, and, and traditions, and he's praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon along with the rest of the Jews. Um, and it says what happened to him. He got down on his knees, verse 3. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Skip down to verse 5. It says, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Now, if our map was up, no. If our map was up, you would see that Joppa is about 30 miles south, also on the coast, just south of Caesarea. Joppa is the present modern-day city of Tel Aviv. You perhaps have heard of Tel Aviv. It's the same city. Um, and so... Uh, he, he learns that there's this guy named Simon, who is also called Peter, who is at this city in Joppa. And the angel instructs him to send some people there to retrieve Simon Peter to come back and visit with him in Caesarea. Um, the angel says, verse 5, send men to Joppa, have them locate Peter. He's lodging at the home of another guy named Simon, who is a tanner. That means that he is a guy who is working leather. 
um, and have them bring the apostle Peter back here to you in Caesarea. So that's what he does. Verse 7, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier. In other words, another soldier who shared Cornelius's conviction that the God of the Jews was the God of the universe. And he sends them, verse 8, it says the end of verse 8, to Joppa. Verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey south and approaching or getting close to the city, Peter went up to the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. Again, the Bible is absolutely in step with the Jewish customs of their day. Uh, the noonday prayers was the sixth hour. The sixth hour was noon, six hours after 6 a.m., which is the middle of the day. Anyway, that's long, or more than you wanted to know. But anyhow, so the sixth hour at noon, he goes up on the, on the rooftop of his house to pray. Again, this was a very common practice to go up onto the rooftop to pray or to go up on the rooftop to lounge or to go up on the rooftop to sleep at night, especially in the summertime. People in this area would have done that because they would have gotten some of the cool night breezes, and so it was a place that they would have used uh, as part of their outdoor space, you might say. It says, verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, Peter falls into a trance. Now, this is different than what Cornelius experienced. Cornelius experienced this angel that literally came and visited with him. He interacted with this angel, but in Peter's case, there's a different word that's used. It says that he fell into a trance. Um, <clears throat> It's something very similar to what Abraham experienced in Genesis chapter 12, where he sees the, uh, the bloody, or, I'm sorry, he sees the, the torch and the, and the fire, fire pot uh, passing between the two bloody halves of all these animals that Abraham had, and God kind of had put Abraham off to the side. This is very similar to what Daniel would have experienced when he was praying for Israel on the banks of the Tigris River. He fell into a trance and had this vision from God. Basically, God incapacitates the apostle Peter. Peter is cognizant of what's going on around him. God is in control of all the things that Peter is seeing, um, but he just basically has Peter in some sort of a paralysis state, you might say, off to the side, and Peter's observing all these things that take place. Verse 11, and Peter saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now, this is a great big sheet, and we know that because we learn in the next verses that there were animals literally running around on it. Um, so animals don't run around on a 10 by 10 picnic blanket. But, so this is a great big piece of cloth, and it's held up by its four corners. Verse 12 says, In the sheep were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. Verse 13, And there came a voice, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So basically, again, this sheet is a gigantic picnic blanket, and it's got all these live animals on it. And now we're going to learn here just a little bit that some of these animals are off limits for Jewish people. They're things that God has said, look, you're not supposed to eat those things. Um, and so Peter's response to that, so the, the voice tells him, kill the animals and eat them. Verse 14, Peter replies, but Peter said, by no means, Lord. Listen, here comes the important verse. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or that is unclean. Let's stop there and talk about that for a minute. Remember that Peter is Jewish. Peter grew up going to Jewish synagogue. Peter grew up uh, learning all about the Jewish festivals and observing Passover. He memorized Old Testament scriptures as a young child in Sunday school. Now he may or may not at this point in his adult life, well, I would say at this point, but before Jesus when he was out there just fishing, perhaps he was a devout Jew, perhaps he was not, we don't know. At least on this point, though, when it came to Jewish dietary food laws, the foods that you could eat and could not eat, Peter was devout about that. He says, I've never eaten any of that stuff that was off limits. Um, you say, well, what's Peter talking about here? What are these Jewish dietary food laws? Where's that come from? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there to Leviticus chapter 11, beginning at verse 4. God is talking to Moses and to Aaron of Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 4. 
Nevertheless, um, it says, nevertheless, among those animals that chew the cud or part the hoof, has a split hoof, you shall not eat these. For example, God says, you can't eat a camel. Camels are off limits. I don't know, maybe they're a little tough. But in any case, God said the camel was off limits, not allowed to eat those. Verse 5, another off limits animal for consumption would be the rock badger. Verse 6, also the hare, not allowed to eat Bugs Bunny. Verse 7, the pig, oh my goodness. Verse 8, you shall not eat any of their flesh, you shall not touch their carcasses. Once they're dead, you cannot touch them. So this guy that Peter was staying with, by the way, who was a tanner, remember? He worked leather for a living. He's touching the carcasses of these dead animals that were considered off-limits to Jewish people. Interesting how Peter ended up at his household. But anyway, God says that these things are unclean to you. And then God goes on to talk about which fish they can and cannot eat and which birds they can and cannot eat. He mentions vultures. Ugh. He mentions falcons. He mentions owls. He uh, mentions all these different animals there in verse 11. Publix fried chicken's not on the list. You'd be glad to know. Anyways, my point is Peter grew up observing these Jewish dietary food laws. He grew up knowing which foods were restricted and which foods were okay. And since his childhood, he reveals that he has kept that part of his, at least that part of his Jewishness intact. You follow me so far? Okay, so this is what Peter is wrestling with right now. He's, this picnic blanket descends from heaven, a uh, voice, the Lord says to him, rise, kill, and eat the stuff on the blanket. It's stuff that's off limits. It's part of the uh, uh, Leviticus 11 off limits stuff. And Peter says, I've never eaten that before. By no means. I will not eat this. Back to Acts chapter 10. Again, along comes God. He presents this stuff to Peter. Peter says, no way. But Jesus says to him, and now you'll notice if you're, if you're in your Bibles and your Bible has a red letter edition, some of y'all have a red letter edition in your Bible. Those are the words that Jesus speaks. This is actually Jesus that's speaking to Peter. He's the one that tells him, rise, kill, and eat. And then he's the one that says to him in verse 15, a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 16, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter comes out of his trance, right? He, sh he wakes up. Verse 17, it says he was feeling inwardly perplexed, scratching his head. What was this all about? What is God trying to tell me? Didn't just jump out at Peter right away. Um, he says, inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had just seen might mean. Doesn't understand. What was this vision about? Is God trying to test me? Is he trying to put something in front of me that he knows that is wrong for me to do to see if I'll actually follow through and do it? What is the meaning of all this? And then just as Peter's mulling all this over, knock, knock, knock at his door, and here's the men from Cornelius. And all this begins to make sense to Peter. Let me paraphrase what happens next. Peter greets the men that are at his door from Cornelius, from Caesarea. He invites them inside the house for some lunch. The men relay to Peter the story about the angel that's visited Cornelius and how the angel instructed Cornelius, the Gentile, to send, a man named, uh, to send for a man named Peter who was in Joppa, who was staying at the house of a tanner. Now, how did they know that? 30 miles away, how did they know that Peter was there and where he was and who he was staying with? And so Peter recognizes, look, this is no mere coincidence. And so the next morning he sets off for Caesarea. A day later they arrive at the home of Cornelius. It says, verse 24, that Cornelius was expecting them and had therefore called together his relatives and close friends. And he says to Peter with much anticipation, verse 33, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. In other words, we recognize 
that what's happened here, this, this angel that Cornelius has seen, that this was no coincidence. We recognize sending a, a, a group to come and retrieve you who were staying at a specific house, you were a specific man that we were looking for, that all of this is not by coincidence. You recognize, Peter, that this was not by coincidence. And so Peter has, I mean, the Lord has primed the pump, right? For these people, they are ready to hear from Peter. They are ready to know what God wants them to know. Now, Peter doesn't get two minutes into his sermon, and the Holy Spirit just falls in power on that place. It says, verse 44, while, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. Verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised, that is Jewish Christians who had traveled with Peter from Joppa, were amazed. So Peter didn't just go by himself with these men up to Caesarea. He knew that he was going to the house of a Gentile and that something was up along that whole Gentile Jewish thing. And so he brings a contingency of believing Jews with him to kind of bear witness to what Peter's about ready to walk into and to what Peter's going to experience. And it says the believers from the, among the circumcised, that is the Jewish people who had traveled with Peter from Joppa, were amazed. What were they amazed at? Or why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, it says, even on the Gentiles. Um, that's our story for today. And so, you know what time it is, right? It's time to ask our most important question. It's a question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I'm not Jewish. Um, I eat pork sandwiches. I love them. Um, I like bacon. Um, I like pork spare ribs. I'm good with any of that. I'm not too big on rabbit, but if somebody cooks some for me, I'd probably eat that as well. Vultures, hard, hard pass. But nevertheless, what, is, what difference does any of this make uh, to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, you know, when this vision initially came to Peter, we learned back in verse 17 that Peter was initially perplexed, right? He, he was wondering what this might mean. He didn't understand what God was trying to communicate through this, uh, through this vision of this picnic blanket and these animals running around on it, animals that he was not, as a Jewish person, supposed to eat, but yet he was told to, to rise, kill, and eat them. <clears throat> so even at the front end, Peter didn't know why God had given him this vision. It was like Jesus had just told him a parable, and Peter couldn't figure out the meaning of the parable. Let me share with you how some Bible commentators in recent decades have tried to apply this passage. Okay, It's going to take a little bit of Put your thinking caps on. Got to hang with me here. I'm going to get deep. Um, how some Bible commentators have tried to apply this passage. <clears throat> because there, there's lots of things going on in this story. I mean, what we said, it started back in chapter 9. It runs all the way through the middle of chapter 11. I mean, there's so many different things from an application standpoint that I could preach on. We could talk about the racism of Peter. I mean, and a lot of pastors do, and there's nothing wrong with talking about that. It definitely is a part of this story. Peter was a Jew. He didn't have, want to have anything to do with Gentiles, although he was at the house of this tanner. I think he was starting to figure some things out. <clears throat> but many of the other believing Jewish people still held Gentiles, you and me, right? we're not Jews, held you and me at an arm's length and didn't, under, didn't want to associate with those folks. So that is certainly an application that could be drawn out of this story but as I was sitting with this text, I realized that's not the main point of this story. And so I want to try and move us toward that and try and figure out, okay, why, does, why, why is Acts chapter 10 in the Bible? Why does that story occupy this spot? And why is it such a long piece of narrative that's repeated over and over and over again? If you read the story, I mean, they recount the story three different times to different groups of people just to try and make a point, right? 
Um, so what, what's going on here? Well, here's how some Bible, modern Bible commentators have tried to apply this passage. <clears throat> Remember, this um, challenges deeply held biblical values and observances, right? Peter has these deeply held values about, I, will, I would never eat, I've never eaten that stuff. I would never eat that stuff. By no, he says to the Lord, by no means would I possibly eat that stuff. Peter tells God, verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Again, where did Peter get this idea? Where did this, where did this notion that was so deeply held by Peter come from? Well, it came from God. Peter didn't make this stuff up. Rabbis didn't make this stuff up. He read it in Leviticus chapter 11. So it was in the Bible. That's where Peter got it from. Um, so Peter is merely responding to this invitation out of a biblically informed position. He is saying back to God, God, I can't do that because you said it was wrong. You begin to realize there's some dissonance here. So some Bible commentators have said, that being the case, that just as God changed the rules of the game with Peter from Old Testament to New, once again, in our modern era, the same principle can apply. That God has changed the rules. He is inviting us to accept and adopt an evolved concept of right and wrong. See where we're going here. In other words, what formerly the Bible declared was right and wrong is no longer right and wrong. Just the same, that principle can be applied to us today. That's how some Bible commentators have tried to apply this passage. The question for us is, are they right in making that assumption, making that, bridging that gap? Let's talk about that. We know because we've been biblically taught that, and thank God for that, right? I mean, I, this, I, I was thinking about that today on the way in here this morning. It, I've been here for 15 years. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I mean, I think it's wonderful. I don't know if y'all think it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was thinking Claire and I celebrated an anniversary today. Um, and it's been sheer bliss. 23 years of sheer bliss, I told her this morning. Um, maybe, for, again, maybe for me, not so much. For, <clears throat> you know, and uh, I'm not sure why I mentioned any of that. I'm just going to move on. Probably the best to move on. Um, <clears throat> so anyway. These are, uh, so because we've been biblically taught, we know that the laws of Moses are broken up into three different categories. Three different categories for the laws of Moses. The first of those, and I've talked about this with y'all before. If you're kind of new around here, this may sound something new. But in any case, you'll probably hear me talk about it again, so it'll become more familiar to you. So, but there are th three different categories, if you would, for the laws of Moses. The first of those is the civil law. The second is the ceremonial law. And then there's the moral law of God. So the civil, the ceremonial and the moral. Let's talk about those. The civil law were the laws that governed Jewish people as citizens of a nation. Examples of civil law are property boundary disputes. How do we handle that? Well, the civil law, part of the laws of Moses, told them how to handle those situations. If someone murders somebody or assaults someone, what do we do about that? What sort of punishment should be inflicted? What sort of remunerations should be made when an assault happens or something of that nature? These laws governed the Jewish people as citizens of a nation. Then there were the ceremonial laws. These were prescriptions for temple worship, sacrifices and feast days, Sabbath rules, 
And yes, included in the ceremonial laws were Jewish dietary food laws, restrictions on what you could and could not eat. These are the ceremonial laws. Anything that had to do with temple worship, with coming to God, with approaching God, how you approach God, got to come with the sacrifices, got to observe these festivals, got to observe the Sabbath rules, got to observe the Jewish dietary food laws. Those are all ceremonial laws of Moses. Finally, there's a category of laws that are the moral laws of God. These are the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of the Bible. For example, the Ten Commandments present a moral law. Honor your father and your mother. That's a moral law of God. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not steal. Do not covet. These are all examples of moral laws of God, the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of the Bible. However, just for kicks, uh, did you know that one of the Ten Commandments is actually a ceremonial law? Some of you may know the answer to this. Which, which one of the Ten Commandments would be a ceremonial law? The Sabbath. That's right. Honor the Sabbath. That's a ceremonial law. That's why Jesus could instruct his disciples to go out and glean fields uh, on, on the Sabbath day. And then the, here comes the Jewish rabbis rushing in. Hey, you can't tell them to glean on the Sabbath. That's a violation of the ceremonial law. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. It's a violation of the ceremonial law, but it's not a violation of a moral law of God. Um, and it's for this reason that the Lord Jesus, again, could instruct his, I'm reading what I already told you. So uh, sometimes that happens. Uh, somebody asked me, I actually went uh, out with a couple of guys this past Tuesday night to do, to do a little water skiing. They water skied, I watched, um, which is why I'm able to stand here in front of you today. Um, and, I, and we were talking about my sermon writing or whatever, and I told him, I told one of the guys, I said, yeah, I pretty much just write it all down word for word. He's like, Really? And, and uh, I don't know if y'all knew that or not, but yeah, that's where it is. But right now I'm not on the page, so I probably need to get back to it again. I don't know what's going on today. That, this, I don't know. Again, in Acts chapter 10, Jesus is not unraveling a moral law of God. Rather, he is declaring a change to a ceremonial law. What Bible commentators of recent years want to do with this passage of Acts chapter 10 is they want to muddy the waters. They want to blur the lines between what is ceremonial which is the topic of conversation here in Acts chapter 10, and blur the lines between that and what is moral. They want to say that the same principle of evolution of ideas can be applied to morality, to moral issues, just as Jesus applied it to Jewish dietary food laws. Perhaps you've had somebody make that argument with you before. Friends, the problem with that is that that dog won't hunt. These are, I know, I thought that was a good little analogy. Any, any of y'all had a dog that wouldn't hunt? I mean, you're like, yeah, that's, that's what we're dealing with here. This is not two sides of the same coin. Jesus is talking about ceremonial law. Bible commentators want to pull these principles of change into a discussion about morality. And that is not what is in view in Acts chapter 10. Friends, that would be a gross misuse of the intent and the scope of this uh, event of this passage. In fact, while Jesus declares here in Acts chapter 10 that the ceremonial law is no longer binding, which he did over and over again throughout his public ministry, nevertheless, nowhere does Jesus, listen up now, nowhere does Jesus declare an enlightened evolutionary view of the moral laws of God. Nowhere does Jesus declare an enlightened evolutionary view of the moral laws of God. We may want to declare it to be so, in order to suit our lifestyles and our choices. But the Bible nowhere gives us that liberty. 
Friends, the moral laws of God are just as binding on us today and unchanged as they were to Moses and to the people of Israel to whom they were originally given. So that's what this passage is not about. That's what it's not about. And I thought it was important for us to make that distinction today. Uh, given you know, our culture and where things are at and how people disagree with what's in the Bible. We want to be biblically informed. We want to be savvy to some of the deceit that's being, uh, in, being pushed on the church within the body of Christ. We see that happening within the body of Christ. Um, and so we just want to be uh, aware of that. All right, so that's what this passage is not about. Then what is it about then? What difference does all this make to my life? Well, it's a great question Peter tells us. He says, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Here's the key verse. After seeing the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles, that is God embracing them, God accepting them, these uncircumcised, bacon-eating, right, unbar mitzvahed, leather-wearing, retail-paying, <laughs> non-Jews, God accepts them just as they are. And Peter realizes something. He says, Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, to Jesus all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let me read that for you again. This is Peter's grand revelation. This is why Acts chapter 10 is in the Bible. This is the point the story's trying to make, and it carries forward, as, we'll, as, uh, as you'll see coming up later in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, To Jesus all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you know that the guy that recorded this in the Bible, the fellow that wrote the book of Acts, was a Gentile? His name was Luke. He also wrote Dr. Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So he wrote these two, two books of the Bible. Luke had no Jewish roots. Luke had no connection in his past and his family in any way to anything Jewish at all. He was as Jewish through and through as Cornelius, the Roman centurion, was Gentile. So this meant a lot to Luke to know that he did not need to come to God through temple worship. He did not need to come to God through sacrifices. He did not need to come to God through observing festivals and feasts and eating certain meats and not eating other meats but that he could come to God simply as the text says, through the name of Jesus. That's how I get to God. I don't need any of this other stuff. I don't need any of these religious hoops. I don't need any of that. All I need is the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 10 represents a radical simplification of how to gain access to God. All we need to do is call on the name of Jesus. Jesus declared, John chapter 14 and verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Nobody gets access to Dad but through me. Jesus said, I am the point of access. You want to get to the Father? You want to petition him for forgiveness of sins? You want his help? You want his aid? You want a shoulder to cry on? Whatever you've got, whatever your needs are, you call on my name, and God the Father in heaven will hear your request. He will respond to your prayers. Friends, if God had left that ceremonial law in place, think about this. If God had left those ceremonial laws in place, how many of us would be believers today? I mean, would this church even exist? I, I, I mean, by my estimation, Christianity would really be a subsect of 
of Judaism still. It would never have been able to break out from its Jewish roots. It would never be able to break outside of all those strictures and all those sorts of things. This movement of Christianity would largely be a Jewish movement. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. We now can gain access to God apart from all the Jewish observances, the ceremonial law. The writer of Hebrews, keenly aware of this change that Jesus wrought, writes of Jesus' work on the cross. He says, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places in heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, those are ceremonial law acts, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. Verse 15, therefore, Jesus is a mediator. What's a mediator do? They're a go-between, right? Between the Father and us. Therefore, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. In other words, you don't have to jump through ceremonial law hoops to get to God the Father. We just come through the name of Jesus. Friends, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, may I say to you that gaining access to God, having your sins forgiven, having a spot reserved for you in heaven, and this has nothing to do with jumping through some religious hoops. Church attendance won't get you to heaven. Putting money in a church offering plate won't get you to heaven. Only the blood of Jesus washes away sins. Not being a good person, not helping your neighbor, not recycling. The only thing that saves is the blood that Jesus shed on the cross as the hymn writer wrote all those years ago. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're here today and you've been thinking about how to get to heaven, friends, it is through putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the mediator of your faith. Something for you to think about. Now, if you were to continue reading in the book of Acts and read Acts chapter 11, some of the Jewish believers weren't too sure about this. I mean, yeah, okay, Peter, you came to that conclusion, but we're not there yet. And so they pushed back some on the apostle Peter. When they heard about these Gentiles entering into the faith, absence of circumcision, absence of adopting the Jewish customs and ways, they were not pleased with this news. But Peter reasoned with them. He said in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, if then God gave the same gift, that is the same Holy Spirit to them, these Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then he says in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to eternal life. But what difference this makes to you and I then, and with this I'm done, is that when God is working, and when God is reaching people for Jesus Christ, but his methods are a little off, are a little different than perhaps we're comfortable with, maybe than we're accustomed to, as long as those methods uphold the moral laws of God, friends, we need to remain open to them. That doesn't mean that we have to do it that way. I mean, these Jewish believers didn't do it the Gentile way. They continued to observe their festivals. They continued to, make, uh, to go to the temple. They continued to, to, do, to only eat certain foods. Um, they continued to practice things in the way they had practiced them before. But they said, you know what? We see that the Holy Spirit, that God is working in your midst, and he's working in a different way than we've, how we think, uh, how I'm comfortable with, how I'm accustomed to. 
And so they were willing to say, you know what? We'll remain open to that. The key is that they remained open and approving of different methods for reaching people with the timeless message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for this um, simplification that took place uh, in the life of the church and how people gain access to the Father. It was accomplished at the cross. But Lord, it took a few years uh, for the church to figure out what the the ramifications of that were. And so God, we just ask that um, however you want to instruct us today, Lord, wherever you are pricking our heart through your Holy Spirit, perhaps we need to make that decision to follow after you, to make you our Lord and our Savior. Or we can do that before we leave this building. God, if there's something in our family, something in our sphere of influence, where we're seeing you at work, but it's just not really what we're accustomed to. Or may we be willing to bless it. May we be willing to be open to your move um, and how you're working in other people's lives. But Lord, our commitment is to the timeless message. That's where our commitment is. Not to the methods, but to the message. And so God, we just affirm that again today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your shed blood. We thank you for your broken body. Speak to us, minister to us, encourage us, we pray, in these moments of quiet communion. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.